Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, and I'm a founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And I am Scott Sigler, New York Times bestselling novelist, and I am an exceptional thief. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, this is episode number three of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytelling in the world of pop culture. Today, apparently we're diving into a debate that has raged since the days of Plato, yes. according to Mr. Sigler, <laughs> uh, has been debated in learned universities and on the floors of parliaments and congresses all over the w- world. Yes, it's a, it's a very common subject. We're going to talk about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yes, it is. Um, you know what? Podcast over. Like, Die Hard <laughs> is absolutely a Christmas movie. Podcast over. I guess then I am taking the the con the the contrary position. Okay. So we welcome you this weekend of Christmas to the Story Smack Die Hard Christmas Special. Yay! Merry uh, Christmas! I don't know if we'll do a Die Hard Christmas Special every year, but next year, you know, it's got to be no a Christmas Story Christmas Special. Okay, for sure. For sure. Okay. So we will get into whether or not this is a Christmas movie for sure. Um, but we already have one question from Brian Kane. What was that question, ma'am? Is it true that Frank Sinatra was offered the role of John McClane? Heard that Die Hard was a sequel to the 1968 film The Detective that Sinatra starred in. Uh, Mr. Sigler, being the foremost expert in the wonderful Christmas movie known as Die Hard. I'm not sure that's true. It's Brian. absolutely true. Absolutely true. I was hoping you could enlighten us with the history behind the movie. Thank you very much for your question, Brian. Scott Sigler, what do you think? Well, Mr. Brian Kane, your highly intelligent question was landed in the forecourt of a highly intelligent expert upon the movie. And I will answer your question now. The Die Hard movie was based on the novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. And uh, Miss Kovacs, there's a, there's a couple of very interesting points to bring up here. First of all, yes, it was initially offered, first offered, the role of John McClane was offered to Frank Sinatra, who, who was, was like 70 at the time or something. That like would that. have been a totally different movie. <laughs> and and so how I, do you know this? I, I learned it. I'm scholarly. In and learned. does that mean the internets? I'm scholarly and learned. Okay. I believe we're going to leave it at that. But apparently uh, Sinatra was like so old. He's like, the hell am I going to do that for? I'm like 70. Give it to somebody else. So yeah. he, passed it, he passed on it. What which, are you, idiots? What are you guys? Idiots, look at me. I'm 70 for crying out loud. I'm going to have some booze I'm and nails and I'm going to walk on broken glass. I ain't walking on any broken glass. <laughs> it's like, get oh, off my lawn. Get off my... So the book was written in 1975. It's a great little story here. And you, you can see all of these things... If you've seen the movie, and we assume you have, we're going to spoil the shit out of this, just in case you've, you're the one person who's never seen Die Hard. Yes. And so to be fair, that is our too, li- too little, too late spoiler. That's our since spoiler. Since I already had one little spoiler about Broken Glass. Yes. And uh, it's on. it'll be on 72 times in the next week. So you should be able to see it. Uh, the year 1975, author Roderick Thorpe saw the film The Towering Inferno which is about a skyscraper that catches on fire. Mm -hmm. After seeing the film and also doing a lot of mescaline, Thorpe fell asleep and had a dream of seeing a man being chased through a skyscraper by men with guns. 
He woke up and later took that idea and turned it into the novel, the detective sequel, Nothing Lasts Forever. Excuse me. Yeah. Question, Mr. Sigler. Yes. Uh, is the masculine thing true? Uh, absolutely. I'm a learned scholar. <laughs> you added the masculine thing. I added thing. the masculine okay, thing. fair enough. But there, this is I the... just was going to be so interested that somebody actually wrote that because he's like, I don't give a fuck. I'm Roderick <laughs> Thorpe. Whatever. Hey, you know what? I wrote Nothing Lasts Forever. The movie Die Hard's been made on. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you took your girl on a date. You had a great time. Thanks to me. Thanks to me. You got some because of me. Now back off, Junior, <laughs> and get off of my lawn. Definitely but, drinking this martini. Yeah, I think me. we need to post the cover of the book uh, over in the show notes at scottsigler.com slash podcast slash Christmas because the cover has the roof of the Claxon building, three helicopters swirling around, very King Kong-esque, things are on fire. It's the same ending. Here's the basic, the summary of the plot from the book. Retired NYPD detective Joe Leland was, is visiting the 40-story office headquarters of the Claxon Oil Corporation in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve, where his daughter, Stephanie Leland Gennaro, works. Mm. While he's waiting for his daughter's Christmas party to end, a group of German autumn-era terrorists take over the skyscraper. The gang is led by brutal Anton Little Tony Gruber. Joe met Gruber during World War II when Joe was a fighter pilot. So, yeah, that... One of his movies called The Detective was turned into a... Uh, one of his books One of his the books, Detective. The Detective, was turned into a movie starring the immortal and not actually dead Frank Sinatra. Um, and he was in that and then... I'm sorry, are you saying that Frank Sinatra is not actually dead Correct. at this moment? He's alive. Wow. He's absolutely... There's no way... You know, you and no I... no way he could die. It's impossible. You and I, uh, the last time we had to go to New York for business, we ate at Sinatra's favorite restaurant. I wonder if he was there. He probably was there. He was watching. If you are interested in the New York City area, you want to go to Sinatra's favorite restaurant. It's a place called Patsy's. It's just off Times Square. It's delicious. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. If you're a Sinatra fan, you just get chills going, get chills yeah, going in the place. Fun. And I think I may have left like one little tiny sliver of scotch in, in my glass. And I think that's why he, he told people, don't ever have him back. He doesn't have any manners. He didn't finish his scotch. I think we, you've been there twice. Oh, well, it was the second time. It was the second time. Of course it was. Of course it was. <laughs> Clearly it was the second time. Okay. So Sinatra, getting back to our discussion, mm -hmm. Sinatra turned down the role. Yes. Did they offer it to anybody else after that before Bruce Willis? They, they did. It was a veritable who's who of studliness who's who? and masculinity and testosterone is and what the, it was. And this is 1980. Ah, uh, shoot. You know what? Look that up. Look that up. Why I know this, but I'm busy looking at other facts because I am learned and scholarly. Uh, about the, 19, as I was just yeah. saying, 1988. The part was initially after Sinatra was offered to Arnold Schwarzenegger and they were going to make the movie the sequel to Commando, which would have been a perfect fit. It would have been great. I know that. I think he would have done great. And although I love Die Hard as it is, I would like a, a sequel to Commando. Okay. I think yeah. both I think both points are fair, sir. Even would, though I'm in the con the contrary <laughs> territory I'm I would agreeing like, with you. I would like to have heard him tell someone else to let off some steam. Mm -hmm. I like you. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that was some kind of Australian, <laughs> not Austrian accent. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Ah, oh, that was great. Thank you. Uh, and then he turned it down. Actually, they optioned it. It was going to be the Commando sequel. They optioned it, as we well know here at Empty Set Entertainment. Options often run their course and shit doesn't get made. Yes. So for whatever reason, he might not have been available at the particular time they're going to shoot it. They offered it to Richard Gere. Nope. Sylvester Stallone. Yes. Could have been fun. Harrison Ford. Fuck yes. Yes. Mel Gibson. Mm. 
probably, probably this I is think Bird on a Wire, Tequila Sunrise, that sort of era. It's it's it's, it's um, a maybe for me. Yeah, it would have been great with Mel Gibson. And then what should have been the greatest movie of all fucking time? Die Hard, starring Burt Reynolds. <gasps> yeah, they offered really? the part. They offered the part to Burt Reynolds. I'm pretty sure I got so excited, my neck made a funny noise. Oh my god, it would have been dope. I mean, like Gator. You I know mean, what I'm saying? <laughs> Longest Yard, Burt Reynolds. Well, he wasn't longest r- r- yard Burt Reynolds in 1988, though. I, when did the, yeah, I think he made. I think they made the longest yard before that. Yeah. Well. Yeah, he, but my point is, he'd be he'd be more akin to uh, at that age, sort of a little more seasoned. Yeah, a little seasoned, more seasoned is a good way to say that. Yes. Sure. But Burt fucking Reynolds and Die Hard. I think they should just remake it anyways. At his current age, let him knock it out. So finally, they gave it to Bruce Willis. Hmm. And I think it's awesome that he was only known as a comedic actor at the time. He hadn't done anything. So wait, 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 wait. For, for Moonlighting. He was in the Moonlighting show. Yeah. And that was wildly popular. Well, I loved time. it. I right, loved it. Yeah. Right in there. Wildly mm-hmm. popular. So because no action star would take an action film, none of those action stars who were giant stars at the time, a comedic actor ended up one of the biggest action film stars of all time. That is correct, ma'am. That's fantastic. And is, I mean, he, yeah, somebody could have done Die Hard and could have sucked in that lead role. No oh, question. Sure. But the structure of the movie and the way the screenplay was done, it's, it's, it's possible to think almost any really good actor they put into that role could have become a huge star. Do you uh, think? Or is yeah. it, or is it, is it, was it Bruce Willis's comedic timing in that action role that made this so... Uh, he's every man. He's so accessible in this. Yeah, and that's. I mean, I think that's part of it, right? It would. I think they could have made a good movie, even if it was less sassy and less funny. But I do think, and you know, I, I think at this point, uh, Bruce Willis is at the top of his comedic game, mm-hmm. and certainly fits the part. He looks good. He's strong. He's powerful. He's durable, which is so important for an action star. Not so important on Moonlighting. Um, and then he actually makes that leap and does that. And then a few years later, kind of does Hudson Hawk, which is much maligned, but Oof. is not as bad a movie as as people give it he's gr- shit for. He's great in a bad movie. Agreed, agreed. But my point is this. That same comedic uh, timing is evident. And, and, you know, the script is so important, but is evident in Hudson Hawk, too. So he and that was. That bombed terribly. So it mm-hmm. isn't just about the sass, and it isn't just about the action. Well, okay, it's the, you think it's a combo? I think it's a combo. So I think it might have been a different movie that would have worked with Schwarzenegger in it, with um, Sylvester Stallone in it. I'm going to go with those two. The rest of them, I think, would have been a different I'm, movie. I'm going to go. I'm going to contradict you a little bit because Schwarzenegger gets a tiny bit, like a small cut on his head in some of these movies. But he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's like watching The Rock right now. You watch The Rock in a movie, he looks like a goddamn superhero. You're mm. not, you, you can't get into the fact of how beat up Bruce Willis gets. And I could be wrong on this, but in, I watched a lot of 80s action movies. Sure. I don't recall anyone going through the physical damage that John McClane went through during the course of the movie. So I think it was a combo of he looked like a guy you would sit down and have a beer with. He didn't look like a superhero and he's getting shot. He's getting cut. He's getting beat up. It's, the fight scenes are dirty yeah, and street really fighting. Good point Those things together made it more accessible to me. Well, and if you book, if you book um, Schwarzenegger into this role or Richard Gere or Mel Gibson at that, at that particular mm-hmm. year, uh, certainly Sylvester Stallone gets pretty beat up in Rambo. So he might've been down for this particular good point. Very good point. Very good point. But, those other stars had a big enough um, 
a big enough box office draw to say like, sure, I'll, I'm definitely down for this and it's going to be great, but I can't be that beat up. And they would have gotten their way. Like part of the reason Schwarzenegger doesn't always get dirty mm-hmm. is because Schwarzenegger is a big enough star. He can be like, I'm going to do it my way and not get so dirty. I'm going to have one cut on my forehead, like you right. say. Right. I do think Sylvester Stallone is funny. And yeah, he's, very, he's a funny guy. Yeah, Absolutely. Great and timing. has great timing and is sharp as a tack when it comes to scripts and stuff. So I think he might have done a great job too. Mm-hmm. But I totally agree with you about the everyman aspect of Bruce Willis. So I, I really think, and I want to get move on and talk okay. about this. Okay. Um, I think it's a combination of a lot of great things that just came together to be a perfect movie for what it is. Not to overuse the phrase, but it's special. The combination of factors, the screenplay, all the people in it, the fact that it dropped to Bruce Willis, dropped to Bruce Willis, and he killed it. All It makes it a special yeah, flick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about who else made the movie. Okay. So we know that uh, Bruce Willis ends up starring in it, um, but you are my screenwriter, so who are the screenwriters? Well, we have Jeb Stewart, who made movies such, who wrote some movies such as Fire Down Below, Lock Up from 1989, uh, Another 48 Hours, and Another the fugitive. 48 hours what yeah. a great 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 he did movie. a great job with that and the fugitive great tight script great movie really really tense doing really small things mm-hmm. that scene in the drainage in the drainage um uh culvert culvert or mm-hmm. whatever that is is perfect yes. it's perfect it's amazing and his writing partner on this was Stephen e d'souza who wrote uh, judge dread the bad one the yeah, 1995 yeah, yeah. one. Oh, we also got a comment from Steve Bickle, who was really, really hoping when we talked about Dread last week, mm-hmm. when we were talking about, uh, uh, not Doctor Strange, Star Wars. Yes. Um, he, was, he actually wrote his comment was, please, 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 please tell me you mean Dread, not Judge Dread. I and mean, we do. Yes, yes <laughs> we I mean do. Dread, not Judge Dread. Judge Dread's a perfectly fine, cliche, you know, yes. f- wrote for, formula movie. Dread's preposterous. It's it's amazing. He, uh, let's see. So Stephen E. D'Souza also wrote Street Fighter, The Flintstones, mm-hmm. Hudson Hawk, yeah. Another 48 Hours. I must have collaborated on that. The Running Man oh. and Commando. So now oh. we've got a lot of that. Maybe that's why Schwarzenegger was. Sure. Schwarzenegger, I like the way this guy writes movies. I want to do more movies with him to name a few. But this is the interesting part of the story. Now, if you guys are movie buffs, you may know this. If you're not movie buffs, you may not. The director, John McTiernan. And I, uh, A knows more about this than I do, so I'm going to pass this off to her. But first of all, to, to give you an idea of how influential Mr. McTiernan is on my teenage years and mm-hmm. all the movies my buddies and I went absolutely apeshit crazy for, would see him again and again and again in the theater. Listen to this list. Basic, mm-hmm. Rollerball, the 2002 version. We'll let that slide. The Thomas Crown Affair. Very good movie. The 13th Warrior, which I friggin' adore. The final battle scene in 13th Warrior is one of my favorite all-time cinematic sequences. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Last Action Hero. Mm. Medicine Man. The Hunt for Red October. To me, one of the most perfect scripts ever. Die Hard. Predator. Predator. So this guy was literally the king. I mean, in my opinion, he's the king of the world. Like there's Sinatra and McTiernan. And then what happens to him? It's interesting that you say the king of the world because in 2006, he is um, interviewed by the FBI who are currently building a wiretapping case against a private investigator in Los Angeles called Anthony Pelicano. And Anthony Pelicano ends up going to prison mm-hmm. um i think he spends like four or five or six years in prison he gets out in 2014 but he goes i think maybe in 2003 okay because 
he was, or no, maybe in 2006, because he was absolutely above the law, or, he, or so he thought. And he would, um, he was found guilty, eventually guilty of conspiracy to commit wiretapping. And when the Fed got a search warrant and went to his office, they found enough explosives to blow up the building they, that he was in. What? Because he was, he was the private eye. Pelicano. Pelicano okay. was the private eye that Hollywood elite went to when they needed something fixed and didn't ask him how he did it, supposedly, mm-hmm. and didn't ask him what, how, you know, what his methods were, but he got stuff done. He got people to, who were divorcing in a very ugly divorce to um, all of a sudden own up and divorce easily. He got people to give up information and get arrested so that they they uh, it would clear the way for like, oh, this guy is being a troublemaker. Cause, and, and in fact, this is how John Tiernan, McTiernan meets him. Okay. He is... He hires Pelicano because one of his producing partners on Rollerball, which turns out to be John McTiernan-driven mm-hmm. and shitty, yeah. um, which is an interesting is story. the Dean Cain one, Rollerball? No, I think... Uh, maybe. Okay. Um, or is that... No, no, that's more recent. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, that's the original Rollerball. Yeah. yeah Great. Yeah. Got it. So he has a creative dispute with another producer on Rollerball and hires Pelicano to help solve that problem. Okay. And eventually... That guy drops out, and Pelicano does. So Pelicano's like old school, like he's New York muscle. He's coming to California, living I, a little. I don't know what he is, but he's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly it, outside the law. Is it possible, like, Get Shorty was based loosely on this guy? No, no. Um, because Get Shorty's a novel, right. Yeah, okay. Um, but he, so eventually what happens is McTiernan gets interviewed by the FBI in 2006 uh-huh. about that incident and lies to the FBI and gets caught lying to the FBI because the FBI, the FBI discovers, because Pelicano is so impressed with himself, discovers audio tape of conversations between John McTiernan and Anthony Pelicano. Wow. So this is such a fascinating story. I'm surprised it hasn't been made into a movie yet, but if you guys are interested, his name is Anthony Pelicano Mm -hmm. and um, KCRW in LA is the NPR or the public radio station. They did, they they have a great show about Hollywood called the business Mm -hmm. and they did a great expose about Pelicano that talks about all of this and was real time in 2006. So at the time they're not talking about John McTiernan. However, he is being interviewed by, by the FBI. The FBI catches him in a lie. Right. And he goes to jail and he spends three years in jail and it destroys his life and his career. What's super interesting to me about this is he, in 2006, Hires a lawyer, goes through the process. He knows he lied to the FBI. Uh And he doesn't want to admit it, and he doesn't want to be in any trouble, and he doesn't want to have to turn state's evidence. So he fires his lawyer. He hires another lawyer who and and then argues that the new – with the new lawyer argues that that evidence of the the voice tape should have been suppressed. Okay. And this is what the judge says. The judge says, absolutely no – Mm-hmm. Also, you're going to jail right this minute because you're clearly lying mm-hmm. and you're charged. I'm giving you a $100,000 fine for wasting the court's time. Wow. The judge characterizes McTiernan as somebody who thought he was above the law, had shown no remorse and, quote, lived a privileged life and simply wants to continue doing that, end quote. He then was ordered to uh, surrender for incarceration in 2008 and... They His do- appeal failed, and okay. he went to jail. And he spent three and a half years See, in jail. See, at this point in the story, I'm kind of waiting for McTiernan to go on the lam. 
Like he calls his old college buddy who served, you know, he served in the Navy SEALs and now he's down on his luck. And man, if he could just get that extra hundred grand, he'd get his life back on track for his daughter who's got the leukemia. So McTiernan and this guy team up and they jet across the country and he becomes a crazy buddy cop, which of course ends with McTiernan going to jail. But, you know, that's not exactly what happened, is it? No, not at all. McTiernan is not a star of one of his own movies. So what actually (laughs) happens to him is he's in jail from like 2009 to 2014. Okay. And he declares chapter 11 bankruptcy Oof. while he's in jail Whoa. Uh, while his all of his homes including his uh 3500 acre uh, ranch in central wyoming uh valued at 10 million dollars is in foreclosure um and then his ex-wife who he had hired pelicano to help ease along the divorce <laughs> she sues him for a five million dollar claim and uh so he um declares chapter 11 bankruptcy and never quite recovers. And as of now, hasn't done anything else. That is quite, but you know, to bring it back to Die Hard, the most interesting part about that story is who do you get busted by? Theo, you ask for a miracle. I give you the F B. <laughs> so there are also, I would also very quickly, Pelicano is the most interesting part of the John McTiernan story that is not on the screen, I think. But I will also say about the screen and John's work in Die Hard, which is exemplary. Um, he's he's flanked by producers Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon, who are huge, 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 yes. huge players. And I'm not even going to go through and list them, but I will say, if you like action movies, Joel Silver... Lawrence Gordon, they're big, big players. Joel Silver especially. And that would be, if you're looking at IMDb, look them up. You'll see a whole bunch of movies you want to see. Okay. So let's get down to brass tags. We talk a lot about all the players, which is important, especially with this kind of movie. But time to talk about the movie itself. Okay. Okay. Uh, We're going to go through. I think we should go through and like, we watched the movie, what, two nights ago? We watched it. Two, three nights ago. We're going to go through and geek out a little bit about our favorite stuff, and maybe overly nitpick, which I'm known to do from time to time. Mm. And then after this, ma'am, then we'll have our debate about and I, whether... And I'm, I'm the con that this isn't a Christmas movie, right? Well, you are the voice of rationality and wisdom. Uh, and, at all times. At all times. That's on, in exactly. this entire work, uh, this entire work relationship, this company, you are the one responsible for re- managing reality. I manage imaginary land. You manage reality. So, yes, you may be the voice of reason here. First of all, let's talk about the movie. I want to talk about the open of the movie. I'm going to talk a little bit about the script and how nice the script is and all the wonderful foreshadowing in the script. But let's talk. Who turns in their seat in an airplane and talks to a strange man about naked feet? Who does this? I mean, I don't know. I had somebody once on a flight um, pick her chin hairs out with a tweezer the entire time. And every time she caught one in in her tweezer, we look at it and then... Oh, that's so nasty. Yeah, at least she blew it into the aisle and not towards me. Oh, my God. Did you say anything? A couple of times I was like, wow, wow, wow. And and the person who was getting all the hairs blown on them across the aisle uh-huh. must have complained to the flight attendant because the flight attendant came over and said, you really shouldn't be blowing hairs. And she's like, I'm almost done. I only have two more. Oh, that's nasty. Well, that's similar to this guy. So you open up the movie. Bruce Willis is upset about the flight. The guy next to him is like, hey, first time flying, huh? So we established that Bruce Willis is not a well-traveled individual. Well, a little subtle. Right, scared to fly. Scared to fly. Subtle little strokes in the script that are great. Also, early foreshadowing about why he's going to have his fucking shoes off mm-hmm. at a Christmas party. Even though I think it's, the flight's over. 
no one's still scared after the flight's over. This is my only nit- This might be my only nitpick. I'm like, it's just so contrived to get his damn shoes off. No, I don't. I mean, he that's I, I disagree with you because when they land, he goes. And that's what prompts. I, I if I remember correctly from two nights ago, I think that's the thing that prompts. And he's grabbing onto the seat, the, yeah, the armrest. But it's the landing. So now is the you're going to carry that fear of flying. If anybody has a comment on this, feel free to come in the comments. Are you still afraid of the flying after the plane has landed? Well, he's not saying, "Are you afraid right this second? He says, "So kind of afraid to fly, huh?" Mm-hmm. Meaning, clearly, you were shitting your pants for the last five hours on the cross country flight, and I could see it because I'm your seat partner. Fine. Well, I will tell you that the first time I saw this movie, I was disappointed that it did not become a karate movie because what movie talks about make fists with your toes that does not involve some serious karate ass whipping? I cannot disagree with you. Fists with your toes. Second point I would like to point out, uh, the puffing away in this movie, within the first three minutes, you have to establish he's a smoker. It's very important to the story. Also, fuels my conspiracy theory. That the tobacco industry is responsible for the vast majority of dark, dark funding for these movies. I know you keep saying that. Like it's I've been watching Peaky Blinders. Mm-hmm. It's the puffing like chimneys through the whole thing. Everything you, every series you watch on Netflix, everybody's smoking up, smoky smokers and all the time. But the reason that you're noticing that is, is, is it potentially because now in our life right now, that's much less likely and smokers are relegated to little glass rooms in airports or out on the street in office buildings and stuff like that. I just think it's it's because so back over- in the eighties that wasn't true. Back in Peaky Blinders Day in the nineteen hundreds, everybody smoked because that's all you did. So it would look weird to not smoke in every in single 1900? scene. Of course it would. Your life is shitty, you're cold and dirty all the time. All right. There's no air conditioning, there's no deodorant. Well, I guess the Peaky Blinders should have made fists with their toes in carpet. Then everything would have been okay. Exactly my point. So, let's see. Talk about the first 12 minutes of the screenplay. We've seen it all 100 times. Um, look, he's not wearing his shoes. Oh, look, the building's not finished and there's construction areas. That won't come into play. Oh, look, he smokes a lot. That won't come into play. But now that you, of course, the first time you see it, all of this is seamless and wonderful. And then as you watch, I don't know, watch this movie a hundred times, I'm yeah. guessing, you start to like, okay, or you see all the Legos, how those seams and the Legos and how everything is put together. It's funny because when you first meet Holly Gennaro, uh, John McClane's wife, he, she is on, uh, in the beginning, she's on the phone with her housekeeper. Mm-hmm. And you, it's another one of these sort of seamless things. You realize that she lives alone. In, in Los Angeles with her kids without John, but you don't quite know why yet. Yep. And you know that she has this housekeeper who watches her children, and she has a spare bedroom, and she asks for it to be made up for John. And, and the, uh, Paulina, the housekeeper, says, but I have already done that, ma'am. And then she says, what would I do without you, Paulina? And hangs up the phone without saying thank you. Yeah, it's a little rude. A little rude. Um, I would like to point out, any of you guys watch this as the Christmas season is coming up? 14 minutes and six seconds into the movie, Cue the cellos of evil. <laughs> they get through 14 whole minutes. And I read some, I wish I'd taken a note for this, but I read some commentary. Part of what makes this movie work the way it works is you don't have the opening scene where. Um, In the climate ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, 
It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. You've got John McClane busting a guy, busting a crack house in New York, busting a heroin den and popping a couple caps in guys. And then you've got Sarge going, damn it, McClane, you're a loose cannon. <laughs> and John McClane's like, sorry, Sarge, I got the bust. Isn't that what matters? We took down some bad guys. There's nothing. He's just a dude on a plane. You don't even find out he's a cop for, uh, well, you do when he's like, I'm a cop, I got a gun. But that's part of what, what makes this movie is there is no action setup. You don't know. He's not set up as some crazy badass. He's just a, just a cop at this point. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes in, 23 minutes exactly, that's when the shit hits the fan. And that's when we start to meet oh, our... wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. So before 23 minutes in, we meet Argyle. Argyle. Argyle, one of my favorite characters great. in this. Argyle yep. is the sort of the, the rube. Yeah. Uh, he's the comic relief in a, in a handful of ways. He's mm-hmm. the limo driver who picks John McClane up at the airport and waits for him, like keeps talking because he used to be a taxi driver, keeps talking like, what are you going to do? Are you trying to save your relationship with your girl? What's the big bear for? Because John McClane's carrying like a five foot teddy bear mm-hmm. um, and then chooses to stay behind and wait in case what happens is John McClane goes up and Holly Gennaro says, get the heck out. Yeah. And, and our, he's like, you just let me know. Our girl's no dummy. He's getting paid by the hour. Exactly. Hang out. I love Argyle. Argyle's great. And then at 23 minutes in, the shit hits the fan, and we meet our very, very multicultural group of bad guys. Let me walk you through the multicultural group. There's a black guy, Urkel. There is one Chinese guy, 238 Germans who all play in progressive metal bands, and Siegfried and Roy. These are the bad guys. Well, there is definitely a long blonde, uh, a guy with long blonde hair and a thick German accent. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. Uh, Siegfried and Roy are, are just awful. Although what we also learn, they are very, very well prepared for what they're going to do. They all have different oh, jobs yeah. when they first walk in. Mm-hmm. They all do them with efficiency and the, the smallest amount of splash, uh, even when it's killing the security guard at the, at the gate, at the front door, I mean. Um, mm-hmm. They are in, out, or in done their job getting ready for for business Mm -hmm. it's because he's an exceptional thief Mm -hmm. uh and and another really nice touch you don't have time to get into there's so many bad guys you don't have time to get into all of them but uh 
a, plot, a subplot point, a B or C plot point, is that John McClane kills a brother, and then the other, Siegfried, wants to come after him for killing Roy. And they establish the Siegfried and Roy relationship in a very simple scene where Roy is trying to clip the phone bank to control all the phones in and out. And he has a certain amount of time to do it. And Siegfried comes along with his big saw and starts cutting through the conduit before Roy is done. Just as a big brother would do it, a little brother, just to be an asshole. Like, here we go. Let's go. And like, you can see Roy just sweating balls, like trying to get it all done. And they get done and then Siegfried walks away. And they're now you step with, I'm going to guess the whole scene takes maybe a minute, 15 seconds or so. Oh, not even. Not even that. Like a minute. And you've established the the brotherly relationship between these two, even though they're kind of at each other. Once you hear someone has to go tell his, his brother's dead. It makes, it's so well done. It's this real short strokes and that's really impressive. Uh, 50 minutes and 40 seconds. We have a list of things I'm going to go over at the end here, if we have time, of cool things about Die Hard. 30 hard facts about Die Hard. At 50 minutes and 40 seconds, my favorite, the ludicrous catch the elevator shaft fall, where he does the thing where he blocks the fan and he has to go down the elevator and he sets up the, the gun with the belt and he's descending into the elevator shaft and it slips and he falls for 25 feet and catches himself in a flush wall in a vent with his fingers. What actually happened there was the guy, the stuntman was supposed to catch the first vent and he missed it and he fell and they had safety set up. So he fell all the way down. At that point, McTiernan was like, fuck it, we're keeping that. And then they just reshot the part where he catches the second vent. Oh, cool. That, yeah. is, that is cool. Okay, so at that point, though, but the building is shut down, I yes. think, right? So they've already, John McClane has already used uh, the phone upstairs to call the police. He's now wearing a dirty brown uh, uh, tank, tank top, top yep. instead of a white one, that kind of thing. But um, the, this is the one big flaw for me with this movie. It's around that time, maybe a little bit later, that outside the building, the Nakatomi building, mm-hmm. we meet the police chief. This, he, yes. He is deputy, deputy something chief. something mm-hmm. chief. He is every movie trope and he's absolutely ludicrous. The actor does a great job, but the character is so incredibly unbelievable and ludicrous. Ex- excuse me, ma'am. Who's in charge here? It's deputy police chief Dwayne T. Robinson. That's who it is. Played, so played by ludicrous. Paul Gleason. Yeah. Yeah. He does a great job. Paul yep. Gleason plays this cheese ball role so, so well. But it's so ludicrous. There's this huge, huge, huge police effort, mm-hmm. and he and and the police chief, the deputy police chief Dwayne T. Robinson, mm-hmm. or whatever his name is, doesn't yeah. believe that McLean is a cop, but also doesn't check, doesn't talk, to, doesn't <laughs> do anything. It's so ludicrous, and at it, I can't tell you how I felt at first because I don't remember that. But every time I've seen it since, I was like, oh, come on with this. But it kind of has to. He has to be the fool. He has to be the jester. He has to be the idiot. Right. Because otherwise you don't get all the the gravitas and relationship between the beat cop and or the desk jockey cop and Al Powell. Yeah. And the McLean. McLean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have that. That's one of the great things because that sets up the whole scene at the end, which that scene at the end, by the way, also matches the book. That is uh, that is in the book, which is nice. Um, of course, at some point we get to the most awesome line: "Welcome to the party, pal," which is just <laughs> wonderful. I would like to point out a continuity issue, ma'am. I have two continuity continuity issues. Okay, that I think only people of a certain ilk who have perhaps seen this movie forty times and are about to watch for the forty-first time are going to appreciate. Number one: one hour thirty minutes hair continuity issue. Oh, with Hair Gruber? Gruber. Hux. Yeah, you. so I will say it's super obvious, 
But you, like, I think you stopped, you might have stopped the DVD because you were worked up about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally true. It's terrible. It's so bad. (laughs) He's got this wonderful quaff, this luscious Euro trash hair going on. He's looking good in his suit. It's a very expensive suit. And then all of a sudden, once he gets up into the roof and he's looking for his detonators, he, his hair is like mop shaggy down over his eyes for no reason. No, all of a sudden, boom, for no reason. And then we go through the scene where he is pretending to be an American, which we'll get to when we get to our notes, which is hysterical. Um, and then as soon as that scene is done, literally, as soon as he goes into the microphone or into the walkie-talkie, he's like, I have him. I have the detonators. Whatever. All of a sudden, his hair is perfectly normal again. Is Shazam normal yeah. again? It's perfect again. It's Aquanet Central. He goes from it Aquanet is. Central yeah. to woke up on the wrong side of the bed with somebody he shouldn't have gone home with to Aquanet Central right off the bat. So watch that. So one thirty goes bad at one, one hour and 33 minutes. It's back on point. Here's another one. I know we've got a few gun nuts listening to this podcast. Uh, I would like you to pay attention from one minute, 35 seconds to one hour, 35 minutes, roughly one hour, 35 minutes right in there. There's a huge gunfire audio continuity break. Siegfried's gun, the sound of his gun changes dramatically from one scene to the next. That's the guy with the luscious long hair. You know, the lion trainer guy. Yeah, but doesn't he move? Yeah, you you are hot and heavy about this. I we have totally different sound profiles, though. I don't. You listen to everything a lot louder than I do, and my mid-ranges are more sense. So I mm-hmm. figured I didn't hear it quite as much, but he also moves from one room to another. So possible, I wonder if possible. that's possible. It was just kind of interesting to me. So that's, I, I mean, you watch it like three or four times. I don't disagree that it happens. I just don't think Again, the movie is so great and pretty, quite frankly, so perfect that you have to find these little bizarro inconsistencies to, uh, to, to point out because there's so much of it is so... Excellent. I would like to say a thank you to Santa. Why? Thank you, Santa, for pre-shaky cam fight scenes. The fight scenes are the best. Nobody makes movies like this anymore. Scott Ziegler. Yeah. You're old as showing. I know. You know what? I watched movies back when they used tripods. God damn it. I mean, you're old as showing. And then we discovered a moment where Die Hard has influenced my whole life. Oh, we did? We did. And one hour and 53 minutes. I'll preface this. (gasps) Yeah, right? I have a Twitter phrase I throw out sometimes when the deadlines are really bad and we're behind and it's like, yeah, we're working 14 hours straight through, no stopping. Uh, and I'm like, that's my Twitter phrase is catch, kill, cook, eat. I will catch you, kill you, cook you and eat you. Yeah. Yes. Catch, kill, cook, eat. That's a shorthand phrase. We're going to, whatever mm. it takes, we're going to kill this goddamn thing. And that's in the GFL. Is this in the GFL? Yes. And then at one hour and 53 minutes of Die Hard during the awesome fight scene, where the the where Roy dies, mm-hmm. uh, no, where Siegfried dies. Pardon me, where Siegfried. Well, well, we think Siegfried dies, as John McClane is throwing a holy unholy beatdown on this guy. And it's again, what I love about this, it's a fucking street fight. It's not karate. It's not a high wire act. It's very similar to what you know people could endure a shit ton of punishment. That's what a fight would look like. And he says to the guy, "I'm gonna fucking kill you. I'm gonna cook you, and I'm gonna eat you." And I, I was know. like, "What? Wait, I've never even noticed that before. It has influenced my entire life." Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very fun because he's struggling. I think they're, are they fighting up or downstairs yeah, or something? Yeah, down and the it's stairwell. In the, in the, it's like the safety exit. So it's metallic and they're fighting. And we had to, we stopped and watched it a couple of times and did a little happy dance. Like, are you kidding me? It's totally true. <laughs> they're having a fight scene where places there's random steam that serves, seems to serve no purpose. Okay, so we're, we're fangirling and fanboying about Die yeah. Hard. We have to get to the fight, sir, to our I'm gonna, battle. I will get to it. Uh, two more points. Okay. Uh, the sequence at one hour and 55 minutes, 
some of the cinematography history, in my opinion. Amazing combo of screenwriter, director, cinematographer, actor. That's one. I mean, isn't it Jan Debont? I think is this is, is the DP. I'll okay, that's you, where he has the rope, the hose tied around his waist, and he pushes away from. He's trying to his feet land on the window, and so we're tying in the glass on the feet, the bare shoes, the blood on the window. How beat up this guy is, and he pushes away and he comes back in. It's just spectacular. I will last point, and then we'll get into the debate. Ah, uh, same exact end of the movie is Lethal Weapon. Interesting. Yeah, exact Interesting. same exact same sequence as the end of Lethal Weapon. Uh, so we'll back up before we talk about that and say yes, it was Jan de Bont is the DP on this, and he you may know from such movies as Speed or mm. Twister or wow. Tomb Raider or what? The Haunting. Or, Shit. Yeah, dude's dude's home free. Mm-hmm. All right, man, you ready to get you ready to get it on? I mean, I guess so. Basic Instinct, also. Oh yeah, some pretty good visuals in that. Let's get into this. Let's get into the show. This is what people have been waiting for. I'm going to guess we're roughly 35, 40 minutes into this podcast. Mm-hmm. I say that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and I have evidence to back up my claim. Well, first, you have to, you have to present your argument. Not the evidence, your argument. What's your argument? Before we do that, I would like you to present your argument, because you mentioned this when we were watching the movie, and it surprised me at how good... It was just your general off. I'm like, why does anyone not think this is a fucking Christmas movie? And you said you gave your reason. And I, I would like so, you to share that with the audience. So first I'll say, I love watching Die Hard at Christmas time personally. Mm-hmm. For me personally, it is a Christmas movie. That said, the argument that I under, as I understand it for whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie goes something like this. This is a thriller or an action movie that is set, happens to be set around Christmas. So mm-hmm. there are a few nods in the dialogue. There are a few nods overall, like the Christmas tree in the lobby and the fact that they're at a Christmas party in the script itself and the set design and all that. But Christmas isn't a central part of this movie. They could place this movie at Easter, and it would work just as well. So the argument is this. If all it takes is a little set dressing and a few lines of dialogue to make it a Christmas movie, then I presume, since you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie, you also think if I set Saving Private Ryan and put a few Christmas trees in that, that would be a Christmas movie, as would The Exorcist. Uh, I'm going to have to go for just a second, but my buddy, <laughs> oh Lord. old-timey pizza lawyer, is going to come in. Oh, Lord. I hope the old-timey pizza lawyer backs away from the mic a little bit. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. I'm going to go. This is me walking away. Okay. You know I can Now, speak. I'm just okay. an old-timey pizza lawyer, but I have to say I might not know a whole lot, but they don't have Easter parties at offices because that would be sacrilegious. The only party you have in an office is a Christmas party. And why Therefore, is that not Therefore, it's a Christmas movie because it's Christmas and it gets a pass. So therefore, the holiday party, as it's now known, in 1989, it was known as a Christmas party. Now it's known as a holiday party or a seasonal party. I also would like, as a side note, to point out that old-timey pizza lawyer Andy Kovacs went to see the Die Hard 2, the sequel to the original Die Hard, also known as Office Christmas Party, which was an excellent movie, also in a skyscraper with terrorists and lots of horrible things going on. Very funny. So that is my stance. Old-timey pizza lawyer says... It is set in a Christmas party. You can't have an Easter party in an office. You don't have a Kwanzaa party. You don't have a Thanksgiving party. You do you have, just have Halloween, Halloween parties. Party. And you do. You sure as fuck have New Year's Eve parties, son. So Saving Private Ryan with a New Year's Eve party with champagne and party hats 
absolutely a New Year's party. Could have been a New Year's Eve party. And we wouldn't need two. New Year's Eve movie. New Year's Eve movie. We wouldn't need two more things, three more things, a few lines referencing the magic of New Year's and New Year's Eve music. Old-timey pizza lawyer noticed that we had Christmas carols in the movie. We had Let It Snow. old acquaintance be forgot as you die at Normandy. That's pretty good. You should be a rap star. (laughs) Yeah. That'd be great. Uh, My dog is a sweatshirt. You guys could dress in black sweatshirts. (laughs) Make the dopest rap album cover. Listen, there's Christmas carols in it. Let It Snow. We talk about it was the night before Christmas. At one point, Hans Gruber says... Theo, it's Christmas. It is the season of miracles. It's the season of miracles. It's Christmas, Theo, the time of miracles. So there's so much going on that is Christmas specific. I don't think you could take Die Hard as it's written and transplant it somewhere else. Okay. I I may disagree. And again, it's I here's my overriding thought. My overriding thought is whatever your Christmas tradition that makes it Christmas. Mm That's a Christmas movie. I have a friend whose whole family loves the Tom Hanks movie, The Burbs. Love it. Right. It's n- not at all a Christmas movie. Mm, I will say no, unless I'm playing into your strengths as my opponent's the old-timey pizza lawyer guy. Yeah, I'd say it's not a Christmas movie. And yet, she and her four brothers all love it, and mm-hmm. they all go home at Christmas time, and they want one of their holiday, their Christmas traditions is after dinner on Christmas Eve and before midnight mass, because they go to midnight mass, mm-hmm. they watch the burbs. So for them, the burbs is a Christmas movie. Even is there though, Christmas in the burbs? No, the, there, as far as I can tell, there is no Christmas in the burbs. Except that, for them, that's a Christmas movie. And I'm not taking that away. The, likewise, if we watch this every year at Christmas time, because it has Christmas in it, and there's jingle bells, and there's christmas trees and there's all that then that's a and he's bringing a giant bear as a present for his kid a christmas present for his kid then it's a christmas movie at the same time i think that maybe you know the nightmare before christmas is more of a chris is is in some ways a more of a christmas Christmas movie movie. and i find your argument to be tangential and esoteric and not quite on the point of what's going on it's a christmas movie with christmas songs and christmas presents and a christmas tree and at the end of the movie in la where there is no snow they somehow managed to have a delightful christmas snow of of bearer bonds coming down while people are listening to christmas music and jingle bells i mean how could that translate to easter Small town pizza lawyer. That's a pretty good point about this, the bear bond snow. Yeah. However, I should mention, since you are a small town pizza lawyer, <laughs> that normally arguing your point, especially in a court of law, requires you not just to repeat the same things over and over, <laughs> but have justification for them. So I will say, I honestly think that if you think it's a christmas movie it's a if anyone at large thinks it's a christmas movie then it's a fucking christmas movie you know why because it's christmas and shit mm-hmm. and christmas and shit means you get to do stupid crazy things like think about all the other things that we do because it's christmas we kill a live tree yep. we bring it into the house we put then, it up as a warning to all the other motherfucking trees don't it, you screw with us look what we do and then we Ring it and garland it with lights that could set it on fire as it dries. That's a good point. That's, That's a, good a point. Christmas tradition for a reason. Yeah. And I know the reasons are multitude. Some people think that's what they always did. Some people think that's just what they want to do. Some people think it's a pagan tradition. All that stuff is true. So that makes it a Christmas tradition. So by default, Christmas Vacation is a Christmas movie. Number one, it's got Christmas in it. Number two, it has a tree that's a central part of the story. Exactly. I see. I see. Well, 
I still think small town pizza lawyer. I just taught, he just left Bye, small town pizza lawyer. He has clearly decided in his also opinion, old timey pizza lawyer, old timey pizza lawyer. Uh, yeah. Old timey pizza lawyer. <laughs> Love that guy. He's great. I believe it's a, he, he and I both believe it is a, it is a Christmas movie. Granted, what was the movie with Normandy and Tom Hanks and the sh- uh, shooting Saving the Private Ryan? Save it, Private Ryan. If it was a, like if there were Christmas trees in it and they had a platoon meeting with a Christmas tree and some presents and shit, then you could say that's a Christmas movie. Okay, so also then The Exorcist, you know that iconic image of The Exorcist with The Exorcist at the top of the stairs. I'm listening. If there was a fucking Christmas tree at the top of those stairs, that motherfucker would be a Christmas tree, a Christmas movie too. If they brought in Santa and Santa's head spun around. And he puked green soup. Exorcist would be a Christmas movie. I'm and with you. I'm I'll with say you. this. I'll say this. If Die Hard had brought in Santa and his head spun around and he threw up split pea soup, so would Die Hard be a Christmas <laughs> movie. <laughs> Last point about Die Hard. They actually used the words ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. So that's how much more Christmas can you get than a machine gun and I ho, ho, ho written in blood? I am supposed to be disagreeing with you, right. but I kind of agree with you. All right, then we have decided that we and the Die Hard Christmas special on Story Smack, Die Hard is officially a Christmas movie. Yes. Does that mean that we had a great debate that we didn't we didn't really debate, or does that mean you won? No, we no. You know who wins? Humanity wins. Humanity. Humanity wins. wins. We have a very important. This is show. our whole gift to humanity, ma'am. I don't think you understand the importance of this show and what it means to the world at large. We are very important people. Capital V, capital I, capital P. Okay. Did you have to think about that last one? I did. I did. Because then as I'm processing it, my seven seconds ahead, because I read ahead of work, because of all the podcasting is like, there already is a thing called the VIP. Scott, you're screwing this up, but it was too late. I was committed. Well, but the thing that is VIP is very important people. It's not, but I meant it more along the lines that because I write science fiction Everybody should listen to what I say because I'm a horribly important person. And I lost it. I, I lost the thread. Do you have leather-bound books? I have many leather-bound books. Mm, okay. I, I have a library that smells of frankincense and myrrh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ma'am, now that we've talked about that, an old-timey pizza lawyer has gone home. Thank I would like goodness. To get, I that would like guy to, drank all my martini. He's a boozer. He, I just small time. I would like to get to my list of 30 hard facts about Die Hard. Okay, okay, okay. And I love that you did all this research about a movie you've seen 500 times. But could we do like either a speed round or maybe you just pick your 10 favorites? Because I, I will go through this and then we will link to it over at scottsigler.com slash podcast slash diehard Christmas. That is, okay. gonna be the, that is where we're going to have this. And we'll link to it. This is a article from Mental Floss, 30 hard facts about diehard. I'm in. We're just going to skip through them. Bruce Willis's big screen debut was with Frank Sinatra. Oh, Bruce Willis has an uncredited role in the first Deadly Sin, where he enters a diner as Sinatra leaves it. First time Bruce Willis was ever on film happens to be the Frank Sinatra who passed up this movie and made Bruce Willis's career. Yes. Clint Eastwood made his movie career. Yeah, made his movie. No, he. Yeah. This first time he's ever on screen. It made it. But uh, yes, yes. Made his movie career. Yes, ma'am. Originally, Clint Eastwood owned the movie rights to Nothing Lasts Forever, which he had planned to star in in the early 80s, probably as a Dirty Harry flick. We don't know. Interesting. Yes. That wouldn't have been a Christmas movie. That would not have. Oh, my God. Another name that pops up. Oh, other names. Holy shit. Rumor has it that we talked about Stallone, Harrison Ford, Robert De Niro was offered the role, Charles Bronson, Nick Nolte, Don Johnson, and Richard Dean Anderson. MacGyver. So look, here's the thing. I also feel like this is a very, very long list of very white middle-aged men. 
But there, which I totally understand, but there are a handful of actors that would have been great mm-hmm. also. Uh, uh, I think uh, Bernie Mac would have been great. Could have also broken out like a comedic into the red. Chris Rock could have been I'm great. I'm trying, trying to think Bernie Mac's, Bernie Mac's age. Yeah, I think he <laughs> fucking, fucking great. I'm just saying like it's, it's been an a great movie with Bernie Mac and it would have been fucking That's awesome. What, and I'm just so, sort of saying like it's an interesting sort of time capsule look into, oh, you know, movies in 1988. Have, instead of yippee ki mother motherfucker having Bernie Mac going, I ain't afraid of you motherfuckers. Exactly, right? <laughs> like there's a million. And it's so that's kind of a nice thing about now is now action heroes look a little more diverse little, and stuff. A little more diverse. And if you're going for a comedy a comedic actor in this dramatic or this thriller sort of role, this action sort of role, it's kind of neat that now it might look a little different. Uh, This is another great tidbit. Bruce Willis was able to say yes to the movie because of a well-timed pregnancy. The first few times he was asked to star in the movie, he he also had to say no because of scheduling conflicts. Then Sybil Shepard got knocked up. He was, she was his co-star in Moonlighting Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he had a window because she had to take 11 months off to do that. Uh, Okay. Almost done. Nakatomi Plaza is actually Fox Plaza. This is my favorite part. Yes, the corporate headquarters of 20th Century Fox, the very studio making the movie, proved to be the perfect location for the movie's much-needed Nakatomi Plaza. That's awesome. And as it was still under construction, there wasn't a whole lot they needed to do to the space to make it movie ready. (laughs) That's awesome. That is awesome. And to show they didn't make a profit, the studio charged itself to use its own building. Well, okay, so that... It's an interesting thing, and and I don't know as much as I would like to know about movie making, but for me, that makes perfect logical sense, right? Mm -hmm. If they were, if they had to pay, if they had to go anywhere else, they would have had to pay licensing fees to use it. They would have had to get permits to use it. Mm -hmm. They had to get permits to use their own building because they were using it for a different purpose. So it's justifiable, I think. It's also awesome, especially because there's that scene where Powell is driving up, he's in the patrol car driving mm-hmm. up, yep. and he circles the circle lot, yep. uh, the the front entrance, and uh, that it couldn't be more perfect because it's the only way to communicate to John McClane. He's driving up, nothing's wrong. He's driving away. Mm-hmm. Like there's not really another way to do that carefully and quickly. And so I would imagine that was a big, big, big thing that the location scouts were looking for. And I imagine they were like, okay, well, let's have a meeting at Fox and then go out and look for it. And there was some dude or some girl on that location scout list. Like, I mean, guys, look at this right here. This is perfect. This is perfect. Cassandra, can we go to lunch now? And she's like, no, no, look. I mean, we don't even have to do the location scouting. Just send them the bills. Somebody get that girl in office. She's (laughs) happening. All right. I'm going to make two because I love Alan Rickman very, very much. I'm still very, very sad that Alan Rickman is is dead. We're going to read two Alan Rickman Posts, parts, and then we're going to fade off into the sunset or into the snowy shower of bear bonds outside of Nakatomi Plaza. Alan Rickman's scene, death scene was scary. At least it was for Rickman. John McTiernan's a motherfucker is what this means. In order to make it look as if he was falling off a building, Rickman was supposed to drop 20 feet onto an airbag while holding onto a stuntman. Okay? But in order to get a genuinely terrified reaction out of him, they dropped him on the count of two, not three, as was mm. planned. So that one, two, and then they just dropped him. So that look you see on his face, that super slow-mo Oof. that I think was either nominated for Academy Award or something, like that whole visual effects. And then they say that Hans Groomer's German is mostly gibberish. So as oh. we're talking about, yes, there's a shit ton of middle-aged white men offered this, something you don't look at very often. That was, Hollywood was so blasé at the time. It's German. Like, and uh, Bruce Willis apparently speaks fluent German. 
None of the European dudes you see in that actually spoke German, according to folklore. So they just... They made they made all that shit up. Right. And this is one of the things I love about living in the future, right? Because that there's no, one because now movies are international, it w- probably wouldn't fly the same way. Right. But two, our culture as as a movie going populace has changed enough that it may or may not have been if Die Hard was made today it wouldn't be acceptable. Mm-hmm. Be like, really, dude? You could Google translate that. You could learn this. You're like, it wouldn't work the same way that it did back then. So I I love. I love movies across the board, but I also love movies as a time capsule and, yeah. and proof that you're living in the future. Also, if there's anybody on the planet who has not seen Alan Rickman movies, enough Alan Rickman movies that he's fantastic in, mm-hmm. that you love him and are sorry he's gone, just like Scott just said, I would recommend my two favorite Alan Rickman movies. One is Galaxy Quest, came out in 1999. Oh, so good. It's so sharp. So it's good. so tight. It yeah. might be worth a viewing because it's I think a sci-fi fun movie. I think movie. We should, that should be put on Story Smack, yes. Yeah, okay. So I'm actually just in 2017, I'm going to start the Story Smack uh, calendar so people can look ahead, mm-hmm. and we'll put that on the schedule. And then... The other movie, which I'm a huge, 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 huge Kevin Smith, View Askew Universe yep, fan, yep. is Dogma. He plays Metatron in Dogma. He's sublime. He's subtle. He's wonderful. He's funny. He, it's such a great big loss because he died so young. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was this year. Uh, so it, as a tribute, you know, it's Christmas time and there's a Christmas movie that he stars in called Love Actually. It's not big on my list, but it is great. Yeah, I don't know if I can watch. I can watch I can watch Alan movies I've seen before he died. I don't think I can watch any more since he's died that I haven't oh, seen yet. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's too much. Too yeah. much. He's just so yeah, fucking yeah. good. Okay, so that's our Die Hard Christmas special. Yes, all done. Next week, next story. What, uh, what are we doing? Do you, do you want to know? Yeah, of course I want to know. I mean, it's New Year's Eve. It's the day before New Year's Eve. Okay. We're going to watch Four Rooms. Oh, I love the Four Rooms. I know. If you guys haven't seen... Antonio Banderas. At Tim Roth. It's a great movie. (laughs) If you haven't seen Four Rooms and you want to join in and you want to keep up, um, you watch it in the next week. You have some time off. It's vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the holidays. It's a great movie. We'll talk about that. Watch it. Watch it so you're caught up when we have this, uh, when we do this. So much talent in that movie. It's crazy. And if you guys are already fans of Empty Side Entertainment, we always do an end of year review and we'll do that as well. I think... Maybe we'll watch four rooms and, as you say, have a few. We always should do. We'll do two separate podcasts, I think, because we drink for Story Smack heavily. We, we drink very heavily for Story Smack. I mean, we've only had one drink. So we'll sauce it up for Story Smack, and then we'll just roll right into the year in review. So by the time you guys hear us next week in the year in review, we cover all the wonderful things we've made, the cool things we made with cool people. We'll be hammered. Yeah, well, at least we'll be fast and loose. Yes. Um, so... That is our show for this week. If you have any questions for Scott Sigler or for me, or you have a topic you would like us to discuss on a future episode of Story Smack, please email me at info at emptyset.com. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at emptyset.com. You can find us both online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is facebook.com slash scottsigler. I'm a real girl on Twitter and a.real.girl on Instagram. And you can find us online at scottsigler.com slash storysmack. We would love to see your comments there. You can find us on iTunes by searching for Scott Sigler Audiobooks. And please subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday as well. And a big hit of Story Smack every Friday. So y'all come back next episode and talk Story Smack with an old-timey pizza lawyer. Goodbye, Scott Sigler. Goodbye.
Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.